Well, welcome to episode 18 of Like Flint Radio. You can find all our past episodes and our future episodes at likeflintradio.com. In this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Daryl Bock. Now, Daryl is Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at the Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Bock has earned international recognition as a Humboldt scholar for his work in Luke and Acts, historical Jesus study, biblical theology, as well as with Messianic Jewish ministries. He was president of the Evangelical Theological Society for 2000-2001, and he serves as editor-at-large for Christianity Today, and is on the board of Chosen People Ministries and Wheaton College. Daryl is also a well-known author of over 30 books on biblical topics. Now, the book we're going to discuss today with Daryl is The Missing Gospels, Unearthing the Truth Behind Alternative Christianities. The book is concerned with later alternative gospels and Christianities associated with the Nagamati discoveries of 1945. The book focuses on the claims of early Christian diversity, the origins of Gnosticism, as well as the theology of the later alternative texts and communities. So now, on with the show. You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Well, welcome to Like Flint Radio. This is your host, GK. I'm coming to you live from my bush hut atop the Great Dividing Range in southern Queensland. And my co-host is with me today, all the way from the mother city at the southern end of Africa. We have the cuckoo clock. Andy Tate. (laughs) Right on time again. (laughs) Andy Tate. Oh, I was hoping we are going to hear Daryl's cuckoo clock. Welcome, Andy. How are you going? (laughs) I'm going fine, thanks. <laughs> um, today we're going to be talking again to Daryl Bock, um, and we're going to be discussing another of his books. Last time we had Daryl on was show nine, and we talked about Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World. Does that sound right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry, I haven't got it in front of me. Yeah, it's a confusing title. Yeah, <laughs> I've got it. Um, actually, I've, I gave my copy away, which I intended to do it. That is a very good book, and it's a good book to give to young people that might be at university or something like that. So I've already given mine away, so there you go. Um, today, we're going to be talking to Daryl about his book, The Missing Gospels, Unearthing the Truth Behind Alternative Christianity. So uh, I welcome to the show all the way from Dallas, Daryl Bach. Well, it's a pleasure, and I hope Queensland is treating you all right. I was out there this summer for a good seven weeks in, in Australia and had a great time. Yes, I knew you were out here. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I hope the uh, weather treated you well. Did you get to a game of um, Aussie Rules football? I sure did. I got to see the Sydney Swans uh, absolutely smack. Carlton wow. uh, with a third period that was amazing and I'm actually planning to keep my eye on the finals uh, as they wind down. Oh fantastic we're quite partisan down here about our football so uh, who are you going for? Oh I'm a Sydney Swans fan. <laughs> I, right. The person who took me is a big Sydney fan. So okay. so there you go everybody Daryl Bock is a Sydney Swans fan. We're going to get some mail over that one. <laughs> now i hope i haven't stepped on any toes if you're for hawthorne we got real problems <laughs> well being um being a queenslander in as far as uh, aussie rules go i, I like the uh, brisbane Lions. so there you go oh very but, good well i their team i kind of root for too so yeah. we're, so we're, we're in good company <laughs> that's right but i do know the uh, swans are flying high and they have been for a little while now after coming out of the doldrums but um, but Daryl, we wanted to talk to you about your book. I've just finished reading it, and it's a what I call a ripper. It's a great book, <laughs> an Australianism there, there, Andy. But it is it is a ripper. And Jack the Ripper killed people, so I'm not sure what I think of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just say ripper in Aussie terms means good. Or I could say a perler. Okay. Know? <laughs> but no, it is a it is a good book, and we're going to talk about it tonight. 
And we want to ask you quite a few sort of broad encompassing questions before we get into the depth of the book itself. For example, the first question I have is, what was the main reason for you writing this book? Because I've got an idea, but if you give us that answer, that'll tell everybody what the book is about. Well, uh, the main reason I wrote the book is because there was a story being spread about in Gath that I just thought didn't reflect history. Um, and it was the idea that in the beginning there were a huge variety of expressions of Christianity, that there was no such thing as orthodoxy. There wasn't a line of theology that went back to the apostles in the early church, but in the beginning you had a lot of different responses to Jesus. It's kind of a pluralistic postmodern read of, uh, of early Christian history, and I just wanted to do some research to show what the problems with that theory were. If it's true, then it means that you know everyone can kind of pick the flavor of Christianity they want, and it has no uh, good historical continuity with the earliest Christianity. And, and I just didn't think it had uh, the ring of truth about it, so I went about the process of trying to show what the problem with the theory was. That's right. I think that's a good overview of what the book is about. I notice that the discoveries at Nag Hammadi feature quite heavily in the book. Can you tell our listeners why they feature and what they are, please? Yeah, Nag Hammadi is uh, a collection of finds of, of early Christian texts, mostly from the late second and third centuries, that uh, also had contain a whole series of what we call uh, extra canonical or or texts about that are called gospels, but they're not gospels in the way we think about them in the Bible. They're just texts about Jesus. And in this material is this kind of syncretistic approach to Christianity that combines a form of neoplatonistic philosophy. I'm trying to see how many difficult words I can use in a few <laughs> sentences. And, um, and, and that uh, neoplatonism divides creation and reality into the spiritual, which is good, and the physical and material, which is not. And so out of that comes a, a very different expression of Christian theology that was competing with the early church in the second and third centuries. Right. So um, I was talking to Andy earlier, and Andy, you were telling me how many did they discover and, and when? How many of these Gospels? You mean at Nahamadi? Yeah. Um, I saw written there 52 Coptic language texts. Right. And in 1945, I think you said, right? Yeah. Um, Daryl, are these considered like Gnostic Gospels? And if so, what is Gnosticism? Do we have a, an all-encompassing definition of what Gnosticism in, is? Well, we do have uh, a definition that people work with. It's the, the term itself is debated because uh, of how organized or unorganized uh, Christian Gnosticism was, and organized is a generous term. Uh, basically what you have is, is an idea that the creation from the beginning was flawed, uh, that God didn't directly create the creation, but the creation was a uh, botched product of underling gods. In fact, if we were to think of uh, British soccer or British football, I like sports illustrations, we would think about gods coming from the second division as opposed to the Premier League. And so uh, two generations down in the creation of the gods, a female god uh, went about an independent act in creating the world, and she botched the job, is basically what the core creation story of Christian Gnosticism believes. And uh, the story of uh, humanity is is the story of dealing with this botched reality that we deal in. What matters is that we're spiritual beings, but the physical world that we're a part of is a mess. And, uh, and everything about the theology rotates around that idea. Now, the problem is, is that Christian Gnosticism, the best we can tell, didn't really emerge until the second century. It's, it's almost 100 years removed from the time of Jesus' ministry. And... So the claim that, that this kind of an idea uh, would go back to the apostles and Jesus is historically problematic because uh, the earliest Christianity seems to have absorbed 
the view of Judaism about the creation, accepting the Old Testament, and recognizing that God created the creation and it was good, and that its fallenness, the fallenness of the world, is a result of rebellion against God as opposed to the fault any fault on either de- on the side of deity or any transcendence related to deity. So how's that for a, for a complicated explanation? That was lovely. Thank you very much. <laughs> Andy, did you have a question about Sophia, which would probably be a good spot here? Sure. Well, Daryl, you did bring it up, actually, in just your description did, yeah. of Gnosticism, and that is just uh, this female deity, Sophia, who does feature a lot in um, some of these texts. Sometimes she's spoken of as just simply this female deity. Other times she seems to be referred to even as the Holy Spirit. Did I understand that correctly? Well, yeah, she's certainly associated with the Spirit in some places. The main thing is is that she acts independently of the great creator God in Gnosticism. See, another thing about Gnosticism is it has a series of transcendent beings who all participate in what's going on. And uh, and obviously that runs counter to Judaism with the picture of the one God. Hmm. Daryl, the other thing I was going to ask you as well was, I know it's important that you were looking at the first 200 years of Christianity, you're examining that. Um, is it fair to say that there were competing Christianities in that period? Like, for argument's sake, there were competing Christianities, and the Christianity that we know now is the one that just happened to snuff everybody else out in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Were there competing Christianities in that era? There were in the latter part of the era. I mean, the way the book is structured is is that what the argument of this alternative Christianities model is is that um, you had this variety of Christianities operating through the 1st and 2nd centuries, and then in the end of the 2nd century, Irenaeus, around 180, began to make the case for the pursuit of orthodoxy, and this launched what is often called the proto-orthodox movement. And proto-orthodoxy battled these other approaches to Christianity and finally won out in the 3rd and 4th centuries, particularly when Constantine adopted uh, orthodox Christianity. That's the, that's the storyline. And, and there, the trouble is, is that there are elements of that story that actually are accurate. Um, but the problem is, is that even by the time of Irenaeus, we've got uh, enough theological unity that it's clear that Irenaeus isn't responsible for the formation of orthodoxy. He's simply reflecting what's going on at the time that he's writing. Um, and the way I tried to show this in the book was that I went through all the writings that are considered proto-orthodox before Irenaeus comes on the scene and simply compared their theologies in a handful of key areas, their doctrine of God, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the nature of salvation. And by doing that, and by showing that there are consistent strands running through that those writings, I was arguing you can see evidence for uh, the theology being present and what the theology of the early church is. And so if there's no organized orthodoxy or anything like that, it's hard to explain how all these documents are saying the same kind of thing, written in different places at different times in an ancient world that isn't hooked up like the Internet hooks us up today. So, so that's, the, that's the thrust of the book is to show that. Now, what's true about the alternative model is there was a political and theological battle that did emerge coming out of the 2nd century into the 3rd century into the early 4th century between these competing attempts to talk about what Christianity was. The latter part of the story is is accurate. And it's also true to suggest that the adoption of Orthodox Christianity by Constantine uh, was, as a historical matter, a very important development for the emergence of Orthodoxy from this conflict. But the thing that it obscures is, is that it's it's likely, I think, that the reason Constantine adopted uh, orthodoxy is because it was the movement whose roots had had the deepest uh, deepest uh, historical origins, and this the Gnosticism uh, reflected a deviation that uh, that really didn't reflect uh, the historic Christian faith. Yeah, I thought that might be the case. Andy, do you have a question? Um, not offhand. Okay, so what I was going to say is that um, one of the main things that you do in the book is to outline the apostolic period, the period of the apostolic fathers, 
and the period of the apologist, and you show the alternatives uh, in each of those periods. And what you do is you go through the book and you get you give the alternative view, so these alternative texts and the things that they may say about specific parts of, say, uh, belief, nature, and God, creation, and the position of Jesus. But the question I was going to ask, and I know it's a big one, Daryl, this is very all-encompassing, but what is the essential difference between the new material and the traditional. So these so-called new texts, let's say um, the ones that have dis- been discovered some 1945, I know there would be others, but between those and the traditional view that we, we still call Christianity today, what is the major differences between them? Well, the main difference is actually related to the doctrine of God and the way the creation is seen. And I've already alluded to this, but just to juxtapose them, in Genesis, God creates, and in the, in the beginning, the creation is said to be very good. The material world that we live in is affirmed as a blessing and, uh, and is affirmed as being something uh, worth uh, caring about and cherishing. In fact, the responsibility of humanity is to be good stewards of this creation that God gives us to live in. Uh, and so that's the kind of the core creation story. And then what creates the mess that we find ourselves in, if I can say it that way, is our own rebellion and the rebellion of, uh, of other uh, spiritual forces in the world. But particularly the fall is seen, uh, and, and Adam's sin is seen to be that which plunges the world into chaos and makes this place a difficult place to live. Um, that is in stark contrast to the creation story that comes out of some of these texts, uh, some of these Gnostic Christian Gospels, which, as I've mentioned, are not like biblical Gospels. They really don't work through the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus as he ministered on the earth in Israel. They really are, most of them, discussions and discourses of Jesus on a variety of topics that are mostly post-resurrection. They claim to in some ways, trump the Gospels by giving Jesus' latest word. And the way they see the creation is the creation is bad from the beginning, and the only thing that matters is who we are spiritually in our existence. And so that moves, um, Gnosticism really moves in two very diverse directions, um, uh, Christian Gnosticism. On the one hand, it can take the attitude of, The material world is evil. The material world doesn't matter. So what I do with my body, what I do in my life really doesn't matter because it's all corrupt anyway. That's one strand. The other strand is the very opposite of that, which it basically says because the material world is corrupt and because the material world um, is, uh, is a problem, uh, what I have to do is I have to discipline my life as a spiritual being and almost be an aesthetic in terms of how I live. And you can see that the two landing places are very, very different. The church fathers concentrated on the bad boys, if I can say it that way. Um, they attacked the Gnosticism that said, it doesn't matter what I do with my body, uh, morality doesn't matter, that kind of thing. Um, and pretty much ignored the more aesthetic kind of Gnosticism, which did have some elements of virtue about it, if you just step back and look at it. But the point is, is that the launching point for both of those approaches, Gnostic approaches, was that the material world was an evil thing and, and either needed to be shunned or could be, com- or could be treated as irrelevant. Um, and, and that's what you see in Christian Gnosticism. Of course, this is very different than traditional Christianity, where the creation matters, it's to be respected, what I do with my body matters. This is a point that Paul makes very powerfully in 1 Corinthians, that our body's going to be raised, that it's a part of who we are, and that we are to treat it with respect. In fact, for Paul, it's a temple, uh, it's a, temple. It's, a, it's a sacred thing that God indwells. And so, that gives you kind of the, the lay of the land in terms of where the key, the key difference is. That's where the key difference is. Now, there are other differences in terms of how Jesus is seen and that kind of thing uh, that also impact the discussion. 
Can I give an example about what you brought up there about how Jesus is seen? And it was one of the, can I say, more dramatic ones that you talk about in the book, for me anyway. Um, in the apocalypse of Peter, the laughing Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, well, they have Jesus appearing above the cross. Um, I just might read it. So this is from the apocalypse of Peter. Uh, and it says, I, Peter, said, what am I seeing, O Lord? Is it you yourself whom they take? And are you holding on to me? Who is this one above the cross who is glad and laughing? And is it another person whose feet and hands that they are hammering? The Saviour said to me, He whom you see above the cross, glad and laughing, is the living Jesus. But he into whose hands and feet they are driving the nails is his physical part, which is a substitute. They are putting to shame that which is his likeness. So I notice a fair bit that they tend to kind of dismember Jesus into this spiritual being and something that's kind of nebulous and ethereal. And I guess that's because that they didn't believe in a physical resurrection. Is that fair enough to say that? Yes. Remember that the key thing to Christian Gnosticism is that the spirit is where things matter and the body doesn't matter at all. So Jesus, for Gnostic Christians was this spirit that came and indwelled a human body basically as a vehicle to to teach what he taught. And so in some forms of Christian Gnosticism, Jesus isn't even really crucified, the spiritual Jesus. The spiritual Jesus leaves the body before it's crucified on the on the cross. And that's actually what the Apocalypse of Peter is describing. And then he laughs from heaven because, in effect, he's fooled people into thinking successfully that he has gone to the cross when, in fact, he hasn't done so. And so Jesus never actually dies on the cross for sin in Christian Gnosticism. Salvation is not about uh, death for sin and reestablishing a relationship with God on the basis of our failure. Um, In Christian Gnosticism, salvation comes from understanding that you are a spiritual being. Jesus actually has very little to do with it other than to point you to a kind of self-understanding. And it's this element of Gnosticism that I think makes uh, Christian Gnosticism attractive to people today. Because it's kind of a form of self-actualizing, self-actualization that is at the core of salvation in the spiritual walk, as opposed to any uh, spiritual need that we have that God has to supply as a gift and that he does for us because we can't do it for ourselves. It's a very different way of putting together how one pursues a relationship with God. And it's another major uh, set of differences, both in terms of salvation and Jesus' work, that where Christian Gnosticism and Orthodox Christianity part ways. Yes, because I noticed that uh, another theme is, and you've just outlined it there, is that sin doesn't necessarily have to be dealt with and neither does a lot of responsibility, even though I think you do say that some of them recognize him as a savior. Is that correct? Yeah, he's a savior in the sense that he points you to correct knowledge. He's not a savior in the sense that he dies for your sin. So it's a it's a completely different, if I can say, it's a completely different bucket that things go in yeah, as a result yeah. of Jesus's work. Yeah, yeah, Andy. Yeah, perhaps just a little on this theme in terms of dualism, this idea that Jesus is either all divine or human in Gnosticism. And you also talk about the high Christ, that some would have seen him almost as just divine, too divine to be human, and others only saw him as human, and so therefore those two could never ever really meet. But you do say that a lot of the new materials share an extremely high view of Jesus, which is the reverse of what many popular treatments of the works claim today, because they want to just kind of make out as though he was just human. So I just thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Yes, absolutely. In fact, the point that I make here is is that normally what you get in the presentation of Christian Gnosticism is the idea that Jesus is a, is a teacher who points the way to this deeper knowledge. But in fact, what's being emphasized in these texts is that Jesus is this transcendent spirit that has occupied a human body that isn't really who he is. It's the spirit is who he is in his essence. And that makes him fundamentally only a transcendent being as opposed to being a human being. And in that sense, uh, there's, a, there's a high Christology. In fact, it's, it, it's so high and it's too high because it denies the incarnation, in effect. 
Um, and that's where the problem with it lies. But it is, it is a very different way of looking at Jesus. Jesus is really this spiritual being who comes from beyond, who basically visits us in a shell that is a human body that's not really him, that he occupies, and points the way to this spiritual understanding of who we are so that we can uh, uh, understand and come to grips with who we are. And in this way, our spiritual power is released. Uh, that really is the picture of salvation as uh, Gnostic Christians uh, picture it. And as you can see, I mean, just in, in working through a handful of sentences and explaining what it is, it's very different than what you would hear in most churches that are connected to an Orthodox theology that talk about Jesus coming and uh, being uh, a divine being that's occupied a human body that's both human and divine, that dies for sin, that calls me to a spiritual reconnect with God, if I can say it that way, that isn't about discovering who I am and letting that release, but is all about a gift that God provides and a provision that he makes, both in terms of giving me life and giving me his spirit so that I can relate and fellowship to him, all done as a result of what it is that Jesus Christ has done. So the two very different stories, um, both invoking the name of Jesus, but with very different conceptions of who this Jesus is and what it is that he's doing. Also, I know that uh, Andy is very interested in asking about the Gospel of Thomas, so is it okay if I introduce that topic now? Absolutely, because yeah. it's a different, it, it's a whole different dimension to this uh, discussion. Okay, cool, because it does feature a lot in the book, and just to give people a taste, and then I will ask you a general question about it, Daryl, but to give people a taste, one of the strange things from that that you highlight in there is that um, it seems that there's no salvation for women unless they became male, and, and I'll just read a little bit of that from your book about the Gospel of Thomas, uh, and it says, In it, Peter seeks to send Mary away because she is not worthy of kingdom life as a woman. Jesus replies, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male so that she may become a living spirit resembling you males for every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom. <laughs> um, it, I know I'm laughing because it's quite different to what you know, I'm used to. It's just bizarre, but go ahead. <laughs> it, it, it really is. And I just wanted to give people a taste of sort of what might be in it. But can you talk to us a bit about the Gospel of Thomas and why it's sort of a bit separate to these other texts that we uh, might discuss? Yeah, it's a good question because you've actually triggered in raising this another dimension of why I wrote the book. Well, I need to tell you a story that led to the writing of this book. If you pay attention to the book, part of what triggered this book was an earlier book called Breaking the Da Vinci Code, which was a response to Dan Brown, who took up all this stuff, turned it into a um, novel, and really... Uh, promoted the story of alternative Christianity. So this book is the second book coming off my response to Dan Brown. And what led me to write the book about Dan Brown wasn't so much as novel as an interview that I did with a national magazine here called Newsweek. Um, they interviewed me about Christianity and Christian Gnosticism. And in the midst of that interview, I told them this story about the Gospel of Thomas, the one that you read. Because in the piece that Newsweek eventually published as a result of, they interviewed a whole series of people, not just me, because it was about Dan Brown's book. Uh, they actually released an article claiming that these extra-biblical Gospels were pro-female. Well, let's look mm -hmm. at the picture of, of the female that we get from these texts. You've already, we've already talked about Sophia, the female goddess who's responsible for botching the creation. And then we've got this text in Thomas, which is, Thomas is, is, has tinges of Gnosticism in it, but it's not a fully developed Christian Gnostic text. Anyway, um, Thomas has this story about women having to become male in order to get to heaven. Okay, now neither of those necessarily strike me as being particularly pro-female. I don't think you have to have a doctorate in reading in order to come to that conclusion. <laughs> you know, I, I have yet to tell my wife that what she needs to do to really be a completely spiritual being is become a male. I don't think we're quite <laughs> there yet. Um, so, so it is a very, very bizarre story. And what it what is designed to communicate? Let me 
let me explain what I think is going on here is, is that there was a belief in some forms of Christian Gnosticism that in the end we'd all be made the same, uh, that we all would ha- take on the same core spiritual qualities. And since the body is not that big a deal, um, our gender in and of itself is not that big a deal. And so we all will be rendered into the same kind of spiritual reality. And then that's portrayed with reference to maleness, which, by the way, is not exactly a commendation of being female by any means. And uh, and so this oneness ends up being resolved in maleness. Uh, and it's a way of saying we'll all be united and be, be the same in the end. It's kind of this androgynous uh, result. And so that's what you see. Um, that's what you see. This text in Thomas uh, introducing. There's another text in Thomas, an earlier one. I think it's saying 21 or 22, uh, which which talks about this idea in in less vivid terms. And so uh, so this is this is a theme uh, in this material. It's interesting that Thomas is a gospel different from both the Gospels that you and I are used to reading in our Bible, and the Gospels that were found at Nag Hammadi. Uh, because Thomas is a collection of 114 alleged sayings of Jesus. And in this collection of 114 alleged sayings of Jesus, you read them and about 25% you go, that sounds like Matthew, Mark, or Luke, because it is very much like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Another 25% you read that, that's sort of like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because it is sort of like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you read the other 50% and you go, I never heard that before. I have no idea where that comes from. Thomas is fascinating because it's a hybrid gospel. It seems to have one foot in orthodoxy and one foot standing somewhere else. And that combination has made it a fascinating text for scholars to study, along with the fact that it's probably one of the earliest of these extra-biblical Gospels. Uh, its date is debated. Uh, some people will put it as late as late 2nd century, which would make it a very late document, but most people date it in the early 2nd century, which makes it an interesting um, historical text in the sweep of the development of the early generations of the Christian faith and reaction to it. So I know that was a long answer, but but that's because the Thomas is really a key and fascinating piece of this overall discussion, and it really doesn't neatly fit into the Christian Gnostic camp, nor does it fit quite into orthodoxy. It's somewhere caught in the middle with kind of trying to walk a tightrope that it isn't quite successful in doing. So would it be, Daryl, would, would this um, Gospel of Thomas be one that I might call postmodernist? theologians if that's such a term would it be one that they would tend to um, point to as one that we we should be taking notice of and might i say have within our bibles would it be the one well i think what they would say is they would say it certainly is an important early text it's evidence of these uh, alternative expressions of christianity it's a historical source that we need to pay attention to the problem with the bible isn't that things need to go in it the problem with the Bible is is that it didn't allow certain things to be a part of the conversation. And so uh, so what historians will do, particularly historians in the university, will say, look, all these texts are evidence of evidences of things going on by people who call themselves Christian. That's absolutely true. Uh, but the problem is, when you view it that way, there's no assessment of the historical roots, and which claims are the oldest, that kind of thing. You know, the the claim that you often hear in these kinds of conversations is, is history is written by the winners, orthodoxy won, and it suppressed all the other options around it. To which my reply is, is that sometimes the winners deserve to win. And in this particular case, the nature of the genealogical roots of orthodoxy runs so deep and so strong that they uh, that they deserve their place of prominence because that's the theology that has its roots in Jesus and the apostles, whereas it's clear these other expressions are going in directions that have little to do with Jesus and little to do with the apostles. I agree. Andy, do you have one question? Um, I suppose the one thing that really just kind of strikes me is right in the very beginning of your book, you talk about how some are using these new gospels and these new texts as an argument for the makeover of Christianity. And I'm I'm just floored by that simply because of what we know 
as we read through your book. And I just think, you know, I, I'm not really sure how they, they can come to that conclusion. The reason, the reason you get this is because what you're getting, in effect, is a, is a secular kind of reading of this history, which means that there is no uh, true theology or false theology. There are just ideas out there that are that, about Jesus that are being floated around with no particular view having a greater claim than another particular view. It's, it's all out there it, for a secular reading, there is no God who speaks. There is no theology that is canonical, okay? It's all human ideas about God. And so what you see is the playing field of human discussion, and that's where they leave the discussion. There's no, I mean, the Bible is a historical thing that we create. It's not a revelation that God was responsible for for bringing about. And so as a result, it washes out um, any idea of true and false in relationship to theology and Christianity and simply talks about it as, as historical phenomena. And even though it, this material is light, it still in some way is said to connect to Jesus. Now, you might have some who are a little more sensitive who will say, yes, um, the Orthodox material has a deeper reach and a better pedigree than this other material, but everyone's reflecting on how you relate to God, and that's really what's important. And so uh, that's another way that you might get a take or a spin on this. So it really is a very different lens through which to read the material, and that's why um, you you get it put forward in the way that's being put forward. But the the hard edge of it is, is it really is an attempt to argue that orthodoxy uh, it, it doesn't have a privileged position in this discussion. It's just one of many players. Uh, Daryl, how were ideas transmitted before we did have the canon completed and, and closed, if I can use that term? Um, how were the ideas of what we now know as orthodox Christianity and what like we would all believe as believers today, how were those ideas transmitted and how does that help us understand that what we do hold in our hands now as as the, well, let's call it the New Testament canon, um, how does it help us understand that what we're holding is the truth and something we can trust in? So what I'm saying is in the first and second century, how did the early believers transmit the ideas about the truth that we now know as the truth? Well, the main thing is they did it in a variety of ways and this is actually a very important question the way way i like to pose it is this way how did christians learn theology before there was a new testament to appeal to and what did you do in the church services when it was time for the sermon because you didn't have a new testament lesson per se where someone got up with a with a bible bound as 27 books uh that we viewed as a unified uh revelation what did they do in the service, and how did they pass on their theology? This is one of the arguments that the other side makes. There wasn't a canon. There wasn't a New Testament. So theology was free to go anywhere, and it did. Um, and so part of the point, uh, this is one of the major points of the book, is to explain how orthodoxy communicated its content before there was a New Testament. If you had gone to a, into a church in the early 2nd century, what you probably would have found in terms of what they were aware of in terms of our New Testament is they may have known one or two Gospels. They may have known a handful of the epistles of Paul. And that would probably have been all they would have. They might know Peter, First Peter or First John. And that would be all that they would be aware of. And depending on what locale you were in, they might know one of the, of the Gospels or the other. They might know one set of Pauline epistles versus the other. That kind of thing is what's going on in the background. So how did they? How did you teach theology when you couldn't say, you know, open up to Romans and to Philippians and Ephesians and Hebrews? Um, so that's how, how I pose the question. And it's a question most people don't even think about. You know, they, they well, of course, there was a, just a New Testament. I mean, there always was the New Testament, wasn't there? Well, actually, in fact, in the early church, there wasn't the New Testament as the New Testament. What you had were individuals circulating pieces of the New Testament, and each church had some of them. So how did you teach your theology? Well, you did have uh, the Hebrew Scripture. You had the Jewish Scripture, which the 
early church simply inherited. So you had core theology about who God was, what his promise was, what the covenants were. That's in the Old Testament. So that's step number one. The second thing that you had is what I call uh, singing. You had hymns written about the theology of the early church. So um, they, And we, we have snippets of these in the New Testament. So uh, what's known as the uh, Philippian hymn of uh, 2, 6 to 11, you know, that Jesus uh, did not see deity a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant even to the point of death, and God exalted him. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Um, that piece of theology was sung and again and again and again and again, and it reinforced theology. There's another hymn in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, where it talks about Jesus being the firstborn of creation and Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. There's core theology in that material. So that's one way they did it. They sung about their theology. A second way that they did it is there were little doctrinal summaries that summarized core theology. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5, is a summary about the content of the gospel with regard to Jesus' death and resurrection. That's laid out in a very uh, clear parallelism that presents uh, that core idea of theology. There's another doctrinal summary in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6, where Paul is talking about the view of God in the early church, and it presents the idea that although there are many lords and many gods in the world, for us there is one God. And then it goes on to talk about the Father who is the Creator and the Son who is the Creator and and how they both participate in the creation. That's core theology that's being communicated. So we've got Scripture, we've got singing, uh, we've got um, uh, these doctrinal summaries, and then the fourth way was what we call the sacraments. I did this all in essence so it's easy to remember. The sacraments are, are the rites of the church that are performed that within them also picture this core theology, baptism picturing the washing away of sin and the entry into life. Romans 6 says it in the summary this way, that you were dead to sin and alive to God. You go down in the water dead to sin, it, it washes you clean, and as a result you come up alive to God. That's core theology. And of course the Lord's Supper, the, which is a, a reflection of the Last Supper, uh, recapitulates and calls us to reflect on the significance of Jesus' death. This is my body and my blood given for you, uh, the substitutionary work of the core theology. So there were, so we have scripture, we have singing, we have summaries, and we have sacraments. And in these ways, the church taught its theology. And what's interesting about every one of those steps is, Every one of those steps is available to the entire membership. It's a part of the public participation of the community in its theology. You're not dealing with some secret, esoteric, mysterious theology that's only taught to some elites. You're dealing with the theology as it's being experienced in the worship and in the practice of the church. So that's how the theology was passed on before there actually was a functioning New Testament. By the time we get to the end of the second century, we begin to get the, the, the establishment and the recognition of a functioning New Testament, the pulling of these books together. One of the things Irenaeus did was to name the four Gospels and Acts, the bulk of the Pauline epistles, 1 Peter and 1 John, as uh, the text that the church treated as sacred. And so you begin to see the emergence of a canon. That process it takes a couple of centuries to complete. But the core canon is basically in place with people recognizing it by the end of the second century. A brilliant sum up, Daryl. Thank you for that one, because I was going to say, this is not a question to you. It's one that people can um, have answered if they read their book, because um, we want to save something for that. But I was going to point out to people that you can find out whether it was Irenaeus and those like him that produced orthodoxy, or was it orthodoxy that produced Irenaeus and the apologist? And that is, um, I think, a core question in the book that does get answered. But that's not a question to you, Daryl. I think I'm just letting people know that they're the sort of things that you can uncover in this book and understand why that's so important. Um, Andy, are you back with us? <laughs> yes, for a third time. I'm doing really well today. Yeah. <laughs> I'll listen to this in the recording. <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple of questions. Well, 
just two really questions that I was going to add to this, and I hope that you haven't now gone over it while I've been away. But one of the things you write about, and I think it just shows how fair you are to this discussion, is that you do talk about some of the important contributions to early Christian study that the new school did make. So that, you know, it's not just talking about all the bad, but there are some contributions that they did make. And I just wondered if you might want to highlight a few of those. Well, a couple of things that they did is they made us aware that when you study early Christianity, you really have to go region by region in your conversation. You can't just talk about what was going on in the second century, because what was going on in different parts of the world were not exactly the same thing. It is the case that certain of these Christian Gnostics made a more pervasive had a more pervasive presence and had more influence in certain parts of the world than in other parts of the world. And this pursuit of this study has helped us to see this and to understand and appreciate it. So that's one benefit. The other benefit is is that we we get the background of the of the conversations that we're seeing out of the apostolic fathers and the apologists. We now get to hear in some senses the other half of the conversation. For a long time we were writing in a way in which we were hearing half a conversation. We were hearing Orthodoxy's response to the to the slew of alternatives that were out there, but we were only hearing it from their side. The discovery and attention paid to these texts lets us hear directly from the voices of people who held these views and believed it, what it is that they actually believed. And there actually is an interesting part to this story as well. You know, sometimes when this material is presented in the public, these new Gospels, it's the mysterious Gospels, the secret Gospels, you know, the Gospels no one's told you about, that we didn't know about. It's new stuff, you know, and there's this this hype that comes with it about having discovered something new. Now we understand what the whole landscape is, all that kind of thing. And And there is an element of truth to that, but here's what's misleading about it. What's misleading about it is is that when we dug up the Nag Hammadi texts and we began to read them, uh, of which the most prominent is a work called the Apocryphon of John, which has this mm-hmm. creation story, this Gnostic creation story that I've been talking about. Uh, when they began to read it, uh, as, as the scholars were reading it, they said, you know, we've heard this story before. This isn't, it may be a new text, but it's not a new story. And the reason for that was, is that when they went back, they recognized that the story was what Irenaeus had told them when he describes these movements that he's writing against. And the reason that's important is because it shows that, that, uh, that the story that's being presented was a story that was told and told accurately even when Irenaeus was telling it in the latter part of of the second century. So even though the texts are new, even though the detail of the content is new, and that's very valuable for us, the actual outline of what it is that the apostolic fathers and apologists were contending against, and the core outline of that story, we've known for the 18 centuries between the time Irenaeus is writing and the time we dug up these texts. So all of a sudden, these secret, mysterious, missing Gospels that are telling us stuff we didn't know really aren't that completely because we had the story and knew the story when Irenaeus was telling us, telling it to us. All that we have now, and this is valuable, are the details that go with it, which does help us, but it isn't, but it isn't a completely new story, which is the way the hype tends to spin it. Yeah, very interesting. You said you had a second yeah, no. Oh, um, do you want the second uh, question? <laughs> is your Sorry. is your second question? <laughs> um, by the way, guys, I'm, mm-hmm. we're coming up to the hour, and I'm hoping cool. to hear Daryl's cuckoo clock go off. So, all oh, right, <laughs> let's go for another... yeah, it's about six minutes away. If you don't hear the oh. cuckoo clock, you get the dog. So one way or the other, you're going to get sound in the background because I live oh. a lot. <laughs> I really want to go for another six minutes, Andy. So, um, I, I know you have got your final question there. Yeah. Do we see uh, echoes of this sort of stuff in? The modern church, but did you have another one before we go to that? No, that was it actually. Um, okay. Yeah, I, 
you know what I wanted to just ask because I think in churches today, and obviously I'm generalizing, this is a broad sweep now, so it's not all churches, but you do get these elements of particularly secret knowledge. That's something that I see quite a lot is that, you know, we, we have something that's secret or that God has given us a new word, it's a new thing, something completely different. Uh, the Bible almost doesn't matter anymore. And so I just wondered if it's true that we do see some of these influences of some forms of Gnosticism that have seeped through into the churches today? Yeah, I think we see it in two ways. Uh, We see it in the claim of this extra word as if the Bible's not enough. Um, And and that's the important thing. And then we see it in the emphasis on what I talked about earlier, this self-actualization, that the Mm -hmm. real goal of the Christian experience is not to appreciate a gift that God has given us that allows us to reconnect and relate to him. But the real goal of Christianity is kind of this kind of journey of self-discovery. It may be a spiritual self-discovery, but it's a kind of self-discovery in which I generate the bulk of the experience. Mm-hmm. And how I react and respond generates the bulk of the experience. And that's not Orthodox Christianity at all. Orthodox Christianity says that God, as part of giving us life, eternal life, gives us his spirit, and through that we fellowship with him, and we are transformed and engage him as he instructs us, renews our mind, that kind of thing. And and the onus for this is not on us, but on the, on the relationship that we have with the living God. It's not a self-actualization at all. It's an actualization that is generated from God. And so those two features, this secret revelation that the Bible isn't good enough, and then this uh, movement in the direction of self-actualization are two overhangs, if I can say it that way, of the presence of Gnosticism that we sometimes see in some corners of the church. It's places where the culture has uh, so, uh, how can I say, so invaded the mindset uh, of some people that it's the culture that's reacting uh, and that's driving the theology more than scripture and uh, and orthodox christianity is yes because without naming names i mean uh, i know our listeners would be aware of a a number of these uh, larger churches that do uh, preach this sort of stuff and dare i say it's not just the larger ones either because they spawn off into smaller churches and that spawning happens all around the world because some of this type of teaching, um, Andy and I have been talking about it recently, is spreading like wildfire mm. through Africa. Um, and they are very, how can I say, I like the term postmodernist, you know, where there is no orthodox rules and regulations. It's just what they believe and also what they believe they're being told or hearing, but also how they feel is a lot to do with it as well. You know, and like I said, without naming names, people would be aware of who these preachers are and what their churches are, and dare I say it, even the denominations. And when I was reading your book, Daryl, that's one of the things that struck me because, you know, it's not hard to work out what's wrong with a lot of theology coming out of these mega churches today. It's not hard to work it out. But I wanted to put my finger on where it came from. And when I was reading your book, especially when you do the examination of alternative materials, I was stunned to learn that that's probably where a lot of it comes from. And here we are 2,000 years later, or let's say 1,800 years later or whatever, and it's coming across the pulpit now. And I would say that probably the vast majority of people sitting in those pews would have no idea that there is this connection no, I think that that's true. So far. Uh, and I, of course, what it reflects, I think, is the human attempt to reach God on its own terms. And when we do mm-hmm. that, then uh, then we put a lot of the onus for getting there on us. And we we hope that we have access to God in a way that uh, reveals His secrets. And that's that's kind of what you see here. So it is there are um, there are attractions to it and what's interesting is that the attraction not only happens inside the church the attraction happens with uh academic people studying this at least some of them who are drawn to the i would say the more humanistic way of doing theology that uh gnosticism uh tends to reflect right and and so even theologians are drawn to it even though yeah if you read this stuff uh, and i will name a name here if you read the stuff that elaine pagels writes for example she is very right. much yeah. enamored and attracted to some of the themes that you see in, in gnosticism 
And I think it's for two reasons. One, because it challenges the orthodox model, which he likes to see challenged. But the other part of it is, is this emphasis on, on self-realization and self-actualization, which actually, to a lot of people, is a very powerful and attractive idea. Yes, yes. And um, that's both inside and outside of um, that's right. uh, Christianity, in air quotes. Um, you see it everywhere. Okay, well, we'll finish up there, Daryl. Um, I just want to point out to people that um, in your book, it does have a table at the back of uh, which lists all these extra biblical um, uh, texts that we've been talking about, that if you get the book, you can see that, you can look through that and see them. And at the beginning of the book, near the, <clears throat> excuse me, and near the beginning of the book is, a, um, is another table that's laid out um, that um, shows uh, the different uh, periods that we've been discussing and um, the orthodox and alternative um, teachings um, that might go along with those. So there's some good tables in there. Uh, the book is um, a very, very thorough, as usual for Daryl, because I've read a few of his books now. It's a very thorough, but also you will uh, educational. You will learn something out of this. At the end of every chapter, Daryl gives you questions that give you time to reflect. Ah, oh, the cuckoo clock. There it is. The hour chimes. Go ahead. I... This is the top of the hour. We get the music. So Here this is running commentary on my cuckoo clock. <laughs> yeah. I, I confess that I was stretching things out there. I really wanted to hear the cuckoo clock. I enjoyed it last time. But seriously, the book itself is a, something that will help you probably understand where a lot of some of these false teachings that have crept in come from. But also, what the book also does, it will teach you about Orthodox Christianity and why we should believe what we find in our Bible, in the one that we hold in our hands today. And um, I found it really encouraging and spiritually uplifting to read those parts in it because what Daryl does is he first he goes through um, the alternative texts and then he gives you what the traditional texts say. And I found those uh, uplifting and certainly good for my spiritual walk. So I'm yeah. going to encourage you to grab a hold of this book if you're interested in either of those things. So the book is Missing Gospels, Unearthing the Truth Behind Alternative Christianities by Daryl L. Bock. Daryl, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And I wish we had you on for longer because I really enjoy um, just being able to ask you some of these questions that I know that Andy and I and our other people that we know in our group and that um, often discuss. So thank you for your time. And um, I'd love if you'd come back again, perhaps next year, if that's possible. Oh, absolutely possible. It's a very, very enjoyable to speak with you again. And um, just remember that I'm keeping a close eye on the Aussie rules as it winds down. Uh, and, uh, you know, my Sydney swans are still in the battle, so hopefully uh, the swans will end up doing swimmingly. Um, what I'll do is, Andy, because you don't have a, a dog in this fight about Aussie rules, I'm going to let you handle any emails we get about Aussie rules. <laughs> Thank you so much. Seeing as I know so much about cricket rules and rugby rules, as I'm always asked, hey, I talk so cricket um, too, I may as well know about. One of the one of the running gags in uh, a lot of our shows, Daryl, <laughs> is um, one of our other co-hosts, Cruzy. Him and I uh, love our rugby, actually, and love our cricket. And one of the running gags is to throw a sport question at Andy if we want to stump her and get her to switch her <laughs> mic off. <laughs> okay, well, I just want you to know I know who the All Blacks are. I know what the Haka is. Oh, uh, so, uh, wow. But here's the interesting thing about rugby, and that is that, uh, you know, in rugby, when you when you score a try, you touch the ball down. That's right. And, and my, my question is, why do they call it a try when it's successful? You know what? I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I, I, was, I was thinking of myself. But what I'll leave you with, Daryl, and <laughs> you can you can stun your Aussie friends with this one. You can tell them that when they put that ball down and it's a try, the alternate version of that in Aussie lingo is a meat pie. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> I don't even know what that means, and I'm supposed to speak your language. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's rhyming slang. Try meat pie. He scored three meat pies today. <laughs> oh wow! How about that? That's a that's wow. a slang expression I didn't know. When I was preaching in Australia, I had this introduction on American reflections on Commonwealth Games, mm -hmm. uh, and it went through cricket, 
darts, bowling, and Aussie rules football. Wow. I left rugby alone because I knew that that, that that would be treading into, you know, worshipful waters. <laughs> well, um, well, Cruzy, like I said, our co-host, he is a rabid South African, you know, Springboks rugby fan. And he's going to probably enjoy hearing this bit, don't you think, Andy? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but, well, let me tell you, I'll close with this little piece. This mm-hmm. is about what cricket is valuable for. Mm-hmm. Okay, Cricket is a great game to learn a foreign language by. I'm talking about test cricket. Yes, yes. Because yes. you watch it, you hear the yell, you watch the instant replay, and then you know you've got 40 to 45 minutes before anything else of significance happens. So you can learn your vocabulary and your verb and your verb uh, paradigms in the meantime. Uh, I, love I love it. it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yes, because you know Andy, don't you? Um, oh, yeah. Anyway, thanks, Daryl. Thanks very much, mate. And um, we'd love to have you back again. So thank you very much and God bless. Real pleasure. Well. God bless you guys. <laughs> thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com. <laughs>